once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We've all heard the infomercial pitches saying, but wait, there's more. Originally from State Fair Auctions, the idea is to make you think you're getting more than you actually are. When the pitch comes from Jesus, we actually get much more than we can possibly imagine. Part 4 of Rest Secure asks, Who is the one who condemns? It's taught by lead teacher Randy Pope and covers Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Thank you for joining us today. I know that every one of us know the experience of guilt, and we know it in varying degrees. For instance, some of you might relate to the thought of seeing an open lane going beside a stacked lane that turns that you need to be in. And the thought hits you, you know, I could go probably an eighth of a mile, maybe a quarter of a mile, and at some place I'll find somebody who's slow to move and I'll jump in front and I'll break line. And I'll save me a whole lot of time. And as soon as you do it, there's that little sense of thought You know, what I just did was to steal from their time to aid mine. And there's a little sense of guilt. There's some of us that will never even think guilt in that situation, but many of us would, all right? But it's minimal, all right? It's not a big deal in our minds. However, the same very action, and you look and see the person's kind of shaking a fist, and you turn around and it's a friend of yours, then their guilt is increased a bit. Now, when you turn around and notice, though there's no fist in the air, but you notice the person that you broke in front of as you look through your rearview mirror is your pastor, me, and you know who I'm talking about. (laughs) Now the guilt is really accentuated, right? I've already had people confessing. It's it's really been fun. (laughs) I'm kind of bleeding it out of you. you But still, it's not a big deal. But take the scenario in a heightened manner of maybe in your younger, faster days, driving intoxicated, and you damage somebody's property, you feel really badly. Worse yet, you injure somebody because of your irresponsibility You injure somebody or Lord forbid, what if somebody lost their life? Can you imagine the guilt that we would live with knowing we did such as that? I don't care what guilt you want to describe at whatever level it is. There is nothing that will ever compare to the guilt that you and I would experience if we stood before a holy, perfect, righteous God at our death. And he were to reveal to us our every motive, our every thought, our every action. Can you imagine what that would be like? Unless. There's the key word. That's what our text today is about. It's the unless. Unless we had on our behalf the mediatory work of Christ as it's called. Where he mediates for us. He comes in between. He reconciles us with our God. So that now we have forgiveness. 
I mean for everything past, present, future, totally forgiven. This text is written to Christians. These these words that we're about to read are for believers who are struggling to really see themselves accepted by God. With the life of sin of the past, the struggles of the present, the knowledge of what's coming in the future, I know I'll never get it all right. And to think forgiven forever, how can it be? Our series is entitled Rest Secure. Our text through the series is Romans 8, 31 through 39. The text this week is in verse 34. And if you have your Bibles, please turn there. Romans 8, 34. The beginning of the text will start by simply suggesting the question, what shall we say to these things? And these things meaning everything that's been said in Romans and particularly in Romans chapter 8. And from that point on, there are going to be five questions that are raised knowing that the reader will not be able to come up with an adequate answer. Because when it says who, there'll be no one. How shall? And they'll say there's no way. And he's building his case, an argument for Christians like you and me who still struggle to think, can I know full forgiveness? So we go back to the 31st verse. And we look at the first of the five questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who can successfully be against us? No one. We look at verse 32, the second week. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? There's no way he wouldn't do that. Week number three, we looked at verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now note that God, which we typically think of the Father when the word God is used, is the one who justifies. Now, as we move into our text today, there were those who were saying, well, yeah, God justifies. We've we've understood that by what you've taught. But what if, could there possibly be the case that maybe Jesus himself, he's the one that was punished for our sins. Maybe there'll be that day in eternity where he says, you know, what you did to me was indespicable. It's so terrible. I can, maybe Jesus would be the one that would condemn. If we left that word, who is the one who condemns? Well, we could come up with some answers for sure. Our our, our own souls, we could condemn ourselves in a sense where we say, you know, uh, me. Or, or we could say our critics could condemn us. Maybe the evil one himself, maybe the demonic forces, but not when you add the latter words. It makes it idle nonsense. This week we're looking at number four of the four things we've looked at. They're in your bulletin. I won't walk through them. God's acceptance overrules any condemnation. Verse 34. As we look at this, there are going to be four words that are going to be used, and they're going to come on a building platform. He's going to begin using the word died. He who died for us. Then it's going to move beyond that, and it's going to say was raised for us. 
Then it's going to build on top of that and say, basically, who is now seated? And then lastly, who intercedes for us, interceding for us? Those four words are going to capture a truth that I'm telling you, Christian, if we get this, it's going to resolve issues in our heart and mind. It's going to put us in a closer understanding and relationship with him. Got to get this, okay? Got to get it. The reality is, is that God cannot condemn. We're using verse 34 that really should be connected in full with 33. I wish I could have preached both texts together. Because these two verses take us into, as it were, a courtroom of law. And it's bringing the legal idea. Who can accuse and who can condemn? Who can bring the accusation? And What judge is going to condemn us with that accusation? And so it's a brilliant teaching that God has given through the Apostle Paul with these four words. Now, we're going to begin with those four words. And we're going to start with the word died. And I'm just going to break open all four of them. Keep in mind that these four words are to be together. We have already, in essence, looked at the first died in the previous text. The same teaching and truth. But the others are very important. Two, three, and four. We can never forget. Here we go. First of all, Jesus Christ is he who died, literally the one that received condemnation due to your sin and to my sin. In his death now, he's left nothing undone. Jesus has kept the entire law in, in, to perfection. Now he has borne our punishment by his death on the cross. With that saying, everything accomplished. But here's what happens. For some reason, though we know that, we get this idea when we sin, and particularly in a, in a form that is, is so blatantly, I mean, heinous, it's so bad. We're going to say, how can I do such as that? I mean, I've got a holy God, a righteous God, a perfect God, and I just cannot sense that I would be forgiven. I just can't believe it. So the question comes, all right, then who's going who's to condemn you? Literally, it would go like this. Jesus Christ? You think he would condemn you? Wait, you're talking about the one who died for you? And then the one that was raised for you? The one that is seated on your behalf? And in reality, you're seated with him in the heavenlies? I mean, the one that intercedes for you? Are you saying Jesus it's absurd. It's impossible. You could take just died, it would be sufficient. It really would because it is his death that pays for our sins. But we think, oh God, how can you forgive me? I love the way D. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. You know, I told you last week, I'm, I'm taking much from him. His commentary is a 16 volume, huge commentary of, on, uh, on his teachings. But here, uh, in Romans, wonderful work. He says this, strikes you a little odd at first. I think it's accurate. He says, what we should do is to insist upon and demand that we be pardoned completely because of what God has done for us. Not because of our own merit. But once we understand his death for us, then we plead and we say, oh no, Lord, you must forgive. You're a righteous God and no sin 
can be punished twice. So therefore, if Jesus paid my penalty, if he died, no. I don't even need to hear any condemning thoughts because it is absolutely impossible. What should terrify us and on one occasion, that is our life before Christ, did the righteousness, the holiness, the perfection of our God. What should terrify us now becomes the very reason for our great security, our hope, our comfort, our assurance. Isn't that interesting? Because now we know he's done for us what only he can do. Amazing. You've all seen the commercials, the info commercials for something, usually something small, but pretty amazing. Can only get it here. And they say, and for only $9.99. And then you always hear the same thing. But wait, there's more. You can get two for $9.99. But wait. And there's more. That's what Paul is doing here under inspiration. You should hear he died and say, wow, how can that be? And then to hear the Lord say, oh, but wait, there's more. It goes on to say, raised. Literally this way, yes, rather, who was raised. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says about that. He says, the fact of the resurrection is absolutely essential to our assurance. Hence, those who say that it is immaterial and unimportant that you should believe in the literal physical resurrection are always people who are without assurance. Very interesting. And so true. Absolutely true. In the same book of Romans, in the fourth chapter, I think it's verse 25, the words are used, he was raised for our justification. I want you to be very careful not to confuse that. When he says raised for our justification, it's not saying raised so that we can be justified. His justifica- our justification comes because of his death. However, the reality is the resurrection proves his justification. Therefore, it is so very important to us. You see, we really have four enemies that we have to face every day. We have the, we have the enemy of, of uh, death. So, uh, so let me begin with sin, right? We know we've got the, the enemy of the evil one, the demonic forces. We know that we've got the enemy of death. And we've got the enemy of hell. You think about it. Those four should terrify everybody. Don't believe for a minute. People say, you know what? Sin, I'm not worried about sin. No big deal. Let me tell you, there's something innate within them that knows they're condemned in their sin. They are condemned already. And they know that. And there's something in it that they say, oh, I don't like it. I know it's not right. I know it's not good. Or to ask about the demonic world. I don't believe in a demonic world. Are you kidding me? No, there's nothing. I don't believe in even a God. I don't believe there's anything past this earth. 
So death, nah, I'm not worried about death. What's the big deal about death? You know, everybody gets it. It happens to everybody. It's over. No, no big deal. I'm not worried about dying. And talking about a hell, I don't believe there's a heaven, I don't believe there's a hell. I'm not worried about that. Don't believe it for a minute. Don't try to convince yourself because you know, you know good and well. You see them all as enemies. And there's some fear in all of us. Told many of you the story of the person I was talking to about Christ. And they said, I don't believe in any of that stuff. You don't believe, what are you, an atheist? I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any of it. So you're, you don't think there's a God or you know there's no God. I know there's no God. So there's no sin. There's no, there's no, de- no worry about anything. Death, it's over. No big deal. I said, you really believe that? I really believe it. I said, well, good. Then you're not going to mind what I'm about to start doing. What are you going to do? I said, well, let me tell you a few answers to prayer. And I told him some amazing things that happened just recently in my life through prayer. I said, how do you account for that? I don't know. It ain't because of some God. I don't believe that. Coincidence of anything. I said, well then you're not going to mind that I'm going to start praying now that all hell breaks loose in your life. (laughs) I'm going to pray for untimely deaths. I'm going to pray for all kinds of disease and problem and loss of work and income. I'm going to just pray and let's just see if there's any reality to the, the existence of God. And that person shot back and said, please don't do that. I said, aha. Little concerned, aren't you? You wouldn't mind if you truly didn't believe that we have these enemies. Well, the question is, how do we find security in the midst of these four enemies? The security comes from the reality of the resurrection. We believed it. He died. But it's been proven he's been raised from the dead. If he can do that, he's God. He can do everything. Is a teaching in Romans 6. And there in that text it says that we have died with him. And it says, and we have been raised with him. But then it's as if the apostle says, but wait, there's more. And he brings this idea of seated. Now we hear about death and resurrection a lot. We don't hear about his being seated much. It's called his session. Session. It reads like this. Who is at the right hand of God? Now, if we look at Hebrews 1, the third verse, the very end of that verse, it says, when he had made purification of sins, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's why I say seated, though the word seated is not in the text. It talks about being at the right hand. Well, the two go hand in hand. They really do. When you are at the right hand, you are seated at the right hand of God. Now, this is referring to the high priest's work on behalf of the people of Israel. If you know much of the Old Testament, you know that there had to be once a year, the high priest and only the high priest and only once a year was to take a trip into what's called the Holy of Holies. What a frightening thing. This is literally into the presence of God. In his tabernacle or the temple, here was the holy place. And the priest, the high priest, the highest of all priests was to be fully garbed and on his robe, he had an ephod on his chest and it had the tribes of Israel, all 12 tribes written there. That was to say he's representing all the people of Israel. 
was his job on this once a year to take an animal, slay the animal, take the blood, and in a basin he would walk into that holy of holies. And when he got there, he would take that blood and on what was called the mercy seat would pour the blood out on the mercy seat, indicating the covering of blood, which gives the, which is by the mercy of God that our sins could be forgiven. The priest was, as it were, the representative for all the people. And if God accepted his offering of blood, then all the people by association were to receive forgiveness and to have the blessing of God on their lives. So people would gather around that holy place and they would enter in. They watched the, the priest enter in. And then when he get there, they're all wait and they're listening very carefully because once it was done, he would start walking back out, which was a sign that God had accepted it. And the way they knew he was walking out is there were bells on the hem of the garment that he wore on the skirt. And once he started walking, they'd hear the bells and everybody would cheer and rejoice and we're forgiven, we're blessed of God. Another year, a blessing of God. Well, the reality was though that if that priest did not do what was required, didn't take the blood, didn't pour it on the seat as it should or whatever, he'd be struck down. He'd fall over dead. There'd be silence. And they realize, uh-oh, no acceptance. They had a rope tied to his leg and they'd pull him out. They couldn't go in. They would die as well. And so this is really just picturing the true picture of the one that would come and would shed his blood literally. Here we have the picture of Jesus taking the blood and he's passing through the heavens into the presence of God into the holy heavenly tabernacle. And there he offers to God his own blood. Let's read, let's read Hebrews chapter 9 beginning in verse 7 and then a little bit of 11 and 12. It says, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. If you look a chapter later, Hebrews is like a commentary on this whole text, this one verse that we're looking at. This is what he says when you come to the 10th chapter, verse 12. He says, but he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are perfected. So let me help you understand this idea of being seated to make it very practical. It covers these arenas. First, that he has finished his work, that it's over. His seated idea. It's like in, in creation, God rested when his work was completed. And we think of rest as a seated position. It says it is final. It is absolutely over. Nothing left undone. But then secondly, we can add to that, that this was a way of depicting Jesus and his reward. He's actually been rewarded. Whoever was at the right hand of the host, the very special guest of all special guests, got that right hand position. 
And the host would acknowledge by putting that person in that place. And now, though I won't read the text in Philippians 2, it talks about how he now, Jesus, he's been honored in such a way that at his name, he's exalted in such a way that every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess because Jesus, the exalted one, he is now raised beyond all. Wow. He's the seated one. It's an honor for him. But I want you to understand that it is also a pronouncement of what he is doing right now. He is seated now on our behalf. And in doing so, what we're really seeing is that, that he, is, he is basically making Romans 8.28 a reality for you and me. Do you know that verse? For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him called according to his purpose. If you were with me when I've taught through Revelation, you know that you come to the scroll and in the third and fourth chapter, you see this thing, this building. And all of a sudden, here comes the question, and who's worthy to open the scroll? And John begins to weep. There's no one found worthy and then enters the Lamb of God and the Lamb takes the scroll. And then everybody starts singing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb, worthy to open that scroll. What is the scroll? It's the story of God's work in, in, in this world through all time. It's his decrees where he's decreed everything that comes to pass for the good of his own people. And then he opens the scroll. And the rest of Revelation is just showing us the story of how he executes his decrees in all things to take care of his people. All this is a pronouncement of saying that is what he is doing until the final redemption of all people, their glorification. That's his work. He is seated there to do just that. And then it's as if he says, I know you can't believe this, but wait. There's one more thing. He adds, who also intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. The former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I really believe that Charles Hodge is right when he says the people who take this literally are very foolish. Uh, This is figurative language. It's to be understood. Jesus is not praying for every one of us every time we sin. Oh, 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 John, he, he sinned again, Father. Uh, forgive that one. We need to forgive that one, okay? And, and, and oh, she just, oh, Lord, and throwing our names out. And No. If so, we don't understand what it means that he died for us. It's complete. It's done. What he's doing is there in the heavenlies, continuing to serve us that his benefits would come to us. That's his interceding for us, making sure that forever, We get all the blessings that we need. Maybe our last text of Hebrews in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. We read these words. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. This is part of the intercessory work. 
He's sympathizing with us. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And look at verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is his work of intercessory, of intercession. He is there, and he is on the throne, and we come into his presence with boldness because we can. We're forgiven. In fact, if you want to know the reality, we are seated with him. We are literally seated with him. The point is, is that as Romans 6 goes on, it doesn't just say you died with him. You've been raised with him. Let me tell you, we are sharing his throne. We are seated with him who makes intercession for us, continues his work of grace on our behalf. And people say, Oh, God could never forgive me because what I did, you just don't understand. It was so bad. And God, oh, I'm a Christian, but you know, God, I can't because I know I'm so, and, and I know I'm not. And I say, wait, get off of all that. Think of the reality, the truth. You are royalty. You sit with Christ. You're throned, enthroned with him forever. You can never be dethroned. And once we start thinking of ourselves, oh, I'm just, I just can't, and I'm not this, and I... No, 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 you got to quit that and say, no, I am enthroned with the King of Kings, with my Lord Jesus, and I sit with him forever. Wow. Oh, yeah, I sin, and oh, how I hate my sin, but let me tell you, reconciled, forgiven forever. I'm royalty. You think of yourself as anything less than royalty, you'll live as if you are. You start seeing yourself for who you are as royalty, Seated with him in the heavens. And I'll tell you, when he says you are seated, let me tell you, that is not a prophecy. That is a description of what's going on right this very minute. You could go back and you could read Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, and it'll tell you about how we've been seated with him in the heavenlies. We are seated forever. He makes intercession. He continues that work of grace for us forever. Doesn't get much better than that. Let me close with this. You know, I I hear people that say, you know what? You can lose your salvation. If you ever have somebody as a Christian who says to you, I believe you can lose your salvation. I I just don't think you can keep it. I mean, you know, if you do something wrong, you can lose your salvation. You ought to look at them and say, please, Christian, do you believe this? Do you understand this? Do you know that Jesus died for you? Do you know he rose on your behalf? Do you know... That he is enthroned, seated at the right hand, having you seated with him. Do you understand that he makes intercession for you? He's preserving for you for all time everything that's good for you that you need. Do you not understand that? And you say you can lose your salvation. Friend, you do not understand the work of Jesus. You've now been too focused on I have decided to follow Jesus. Therefore, I'm his. Uh Uh-oh, I guess I decided not to follow Jesus in this occasion. Therefore, I guess I'm not his. No, the focus is not what on, we, on what we do. It's what he has done. And so, how do you get such security? For our seeker friends here saying, I want to understand this faith. How do you get it? Well, Romans chapter 5, the first verse says it very clearly. It says, it is by faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's faith. Well, what is faith? 
Faith is trusting that his work on my behalf is sufficient. His righteousness given to me is sufficient. So let's put it in a, let's put it in a formula. Just judge. You take a just judge plus guilty sinner, you and me, plus the death of Jesus, plus faith, as it mentions, equals no condemnation. This is the work of Christ. But let me tell you, it's his work, not our faith, that brings us no condemnation. It's when we have faith, which is a gift as well, then that's when we have no condemnation. All right, well, if it's his gift, I can't earn faith. I can't create my own faith. How do you get it? You go before God and you plead for it. It's a love relationship. Go to the cross. Stare at the cross long enough. Look at his love. Read the scriptures. Get to understand who he is and what he's done. And it's faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's his gift, but he uses means to do that. And his word is the instrument. That's why it's important that you hear the teaching of God's word, not just some good news proclamation of what. Hear the teaching of the word. Faith builds your faith. So last week, I closed with it. I'll close with it again. You remember the merit ladders? Got to make sure we understand this. Many of all of us are raised thinking it's natural to think, okay, merit ladder, merit ladder. I've got to climb and climb and climb. And if I get better and better and better, God will accept me. Not true. I heard somebody say years ago, you know, the issue is not how high you are on the ladder. The issue is what building is the ladder leaning against? Are you on the right ladder? You can climb to the very top, but be on the wrong ladder. And that's what I was doing. That's what many of you are doing even now. Many of us have done in our past. And that is climb the merit ladder and think, oh, the higher I get, the better my chances. No, no, no. There's a whole different ladder. It's leaning against a different building. It's leaning on almighty God. And the moment we come to faith in Jesus, the very second, we are placed at the top of that ladder and we're secure there. That's referring to the passive righteousness that we gain. It's his righteousness merited to us, puts us at the very, very top of the ladder. But what you and I realize is once we get there, we are so odd. The love of God is so real. As young as we may be in the faith, as struggling as we may be, we're going, yes, I've been truly brought into his merit. Yay, God. What happens is we picture ourselves in our active righteousness at the bottom of the ladder. And there is a desire to climb like you can't imagine. It should be an ever-growing desire and a hatred when we fall back a few rungs. But we want to climb and climb, not because it gives us any merit before God. It doesn't. Not because it does something to say, okay, now I, no, no, no. It's because of the pleasure of God and the love that he sees that his people are seeking to follow him and be more like his son, Jesus. And as I said last week, when we come to the place, we say, you know what? Yeah, I believe in that merit ladder and I'm at the top of that ladder. And you know what? Therefore, I don't care about the act of righteousness. That's not a big deal right now to me. I say, that's when you better be scared that maybe you think you're on the merit ladder of Jesus, but you're not. Because when you get a love for him, it'll never be this thought. I'm at the top and I can do anything I want and I'm forgiven and yay, God, and that's it. No, it's, oh God, now more than ever, I want to climb with all of my, all of my effort. God, let me climb to your honor and to your glory. Folks, there's no better message than what we're finding in Romans chapter eight. 
And next week, oh, there's more. The text we're going to all love. You're familiar with it, most of you. Now, who's going to separate us from the love of God? And he'll give a list that includes everything imaginable. And the answer is nothing, no one can ever separate us from the love of God. That is the good news of the gospel. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.